0: Welcome to the Evolved Caveman, where men learn to be successful and happy with your host, Dr. John Schinnerer, as he shares the most impactful ideas and practices for you to get the most from your relationships, your work, and from your life. Now, here's Dr. John.
1: Hey everybody, this is Dr. John, the Evolving Caveman, and I am here today with my new friend, Matt Ward, who just wrote the book, The High Five Effect. How to do business with people who bring you joy. And so let me ask you do you want more money, more time, more freedom? Well, sure, we all do. But those achievements aren't enough if joy doesn't accompany them. And that was the kind of philosophy that really drew me to Matt, because I absolutely agree with him. So in the high five effect, longtime business owner and business consultant Matt Ward shares the components that will bring you so much joy in your business that you'll want to high five your clients. And achieving that joy boils down to finding the right clients and focusing on what you're good at, while saying no to the wrong clients and projects. In this book, Matt teaches how to assess your business and determine where you currently are, and then teach you how to strengthen and grow it in ways that will bring you joy. So I am really excited and honored to have with me today, Matt Ward.
0: Matt, how you doing? Ah, uh, thank you so much, Doctor John. I I'm excited to be here.
1: And and so I got to tell the listeners out there that, that Matt and I had an introductory call and Matt shared his origin story with me. And I was so blown away by it that I was just like, oh my God, we have to have this conversation on air. So would you go back into the past and tell us about Hershey, Pennsylvania?
0: Yeah. And sometimes it's always good to record those pre-calls, right? I, I
1: agree. I've done that a few times where I'm like, oh,
0: the meat, and then we then we sell access to the behind the scenes podcast of uh-huh. the Doctor Johnny All Caveman podcast. So yeah, so um, so a lot of people ask people where they're from, and I I tell people I'm from Hershey, Pennsylvania, and they get excited because they might have been. It's kind of like Disney World for some people. Yeah, uh, Hershey, Pennsylvania is pretty much what you think it is. It's Chocolate Town, USA, and it smells like chocolate there because they make chocolate there and you can buy a lot of chocolate there and the street lights are wrapped in unwrapped Hershey kisses like they're shaped in the form of Hershey kisses you can google that just Hershey Pennsylvania street street lights and you'll see what I'm talking about um, but uh, most people are familiar with Hershey chocolate and the brand and chocolate and halloween and big candy bars and what they don't know is that milton hershey himself the guy that created that chocolate bar uh could not have children so he and his wife Catherine, in 1909 put all of their fortune into a trust fund to benefit an orphanage for disadvantaged kids and uh now there are currently 2,500 kids kindergarten through 12th grade that attend a private tuition free boarding school in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Uh, When they graduate, they're eligible for up to $90,000 to go to college. It's a game changer organization. Mm -hmm. And when I tell people I'm from Hershey, it's because I went to that school. I graduated from that school and I spent seven years at that school and that school changed my life. Um, So what I often tell on stages when I speak all over the country as a professional speaker is that I'm the youngest of three boys, the first to graduate high school. And, and just the to only clarify, one, not an orphan. No, I'm not an orphan. No, no. I'm a, what they call a social orphan. So now to qualify in the school, you have to be, um, your parents have to be, have to be divorced, separated or deceased, and you have to fall within a certain qualification guideline of, of uh, income guidelines of the poverty line. I think it's uh, 150% of the poverty line is what gets you in. And you're not, you're not just automatically in the school, right? Um, so yeah, so two two older brothers. I'm the youngest of three boys, the first who graduate high school, and the only one not to go to prison. Wow. And I'm certain I was on that path at some point. Yeah. I didn't know where I was going to go. But I definitely remember fighting with my brothers constantly. We were latchkey kids. My mom was doing the best she could. She was doing what she knew how. Whether that was right or wrong is only for her to judge, I guess. You know, and uh, I, I, I for sure would have ended up in prison. I'll never forget at a very young age fighting with my brothers. One brother running down the hallway and me throwing a knife at him. He got stuck. It was a steak knife. It got stuck in the back calf. And all of these kids, we all, all these kids, siblings fight, you know, if you have kids, you know, this, but. Oh
1: yeah. I had brothers across the street from me growing up that did the same thing.
0: Yeah. But it's not every day that kids are throwing knives at each other. Right. And, 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 and to the extreme that, that, so, so I go to the school, I graduate uh, in 1991 and I did one semester of community college Two, actually two semesters of community college. Uh, I was a hotel restaurant major and I dropped out because I failed broccoli and cheese sauce class.
1: <laughs> that's, that's sad.
0: Yeah. And I don't eat broccoli now. <laughs> if you're watching on YouTube, you know exactly why I don't eat broccoli. I'm not exactly a thin a guy. I don't go to CrossFit. I go to cross gotcha. pizza. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh, so yeah, so I just kind of went and made my way, um, to uh, to where i am today and and that journey was quite interesting you know uh i did all kinds of jobs i was everything from the orkin man that treated homes for termites to uh, a courier um, driving my car this is long before uber existed and mm-hmm. overnight delivery i worked for fedex and but in 1997 i i Metacrow online back when it was dial-up and you had to pay by the minute. AOL online. AOL. <laughs> AOL. And uh, I um, sold my car on the street of Washington, D.C. for $50. That's all the money I had in my pocket. I filed bankruptcy, Labor Day in 97. And I moved to Massachusetts to be with her. And I got a job in a mailroom, working second shift, took on extra hours, worked my way up at the company, left that company two years later, went to a software development company and got laid off in 2003. Labor Day of 2003, I got laid off from that company in New Hampshire and uh, got picked up as a contractor for a company called Lycos.com, a search engine that most people mm-hmm. don't remember much about, but they're still out there. I did some work for them for about 15 months and then launched my own web design agency and um, grew up full-time and, and had eight employees and realized that through that process that the business had a hold on me. I lost my first marriage because all I ever did was work. I was married to the business. She was married to work. She was senior management at Comcast. Mm -hmm. And so we would literally get home from work, sit in front of the TV, eat fast food for dinner and have laptops on our on our lap and we were working. Can I ask you a question there?
1: Cause I, I just did a yeah. podcast episode on addicted to success where this is the dynamic, right? That we men in particular get addicted to our job because we get those dopamine hits mm-hmm. of whatever praise or, you know, accomplishment. Why do you think you were working to that extent?
0: It, um, I don't know the answer to that. The exact yeah. answer. What I do know is that I wasn't making any money. I was making like 40 grand a year and she was making way more money. She was six figures, senior management Comcast. Um, her career was very important to her. Um, I don't, I I don't know why I worked so much for so little, frankly, because I could have gone and gotten a job for 50 or 60 grand at that time. Um, but I did. And, and for me, I think it was the journey of figuring it all out. Um, But the sacrifices I made in that process were many and many, unfortunately, many sacrifices that I never realized I was actually making. So my weight was growing drastically every month and every year to the point where I at my highest weight was 464 pounds. Wow. 2010, I had the gastric bypass surgery and lost uh, 200 plus pounds. A little bit back since then, but I'm at a comfortable weight now that I'm happy with. And I'm more um, consciously making better decisions about my health. Um, But, you know, it, it it, it took a, it, it, you know, so my weight suffered, my marriage suffered, my relationship with, with my wife at the time suffered. We ended up being divorced in 2010, same year I got my weight loss surgery. And so it was just, um, a lot, a lot uh, fell apart in those years. Um, and, and then, of course, the economy was crashing in 08 and 09, which led up to a lot of this stress and whatever was involved there. Um, and then I realized, as I got further along, 2015, 2017, that my business had a hold on me and was controlling me, and I was not controlling my business. And that was unacceptable, and so I sold it. I sold it for seven figures to a guy I met in a networking group ten years earlier. And uh, so, if anybody tells you, by the way, Doctor John, that networking doesn't work, you tell them I sold it <laughs> for seven figures.
1: Yeah, fair enough.
0: Yeah, and so that's that's conceptually that's where the ideas of the book came from. But what I realize now is is that money isn't important to me. I think I was driven for money back then. Um, I was driven for success at some point. And you know, I, for many years, Dr. John, I never felt I was successful. It took, it took two different people in two different conversations inside the same week, probably in 2000 13 or 14. To tell me that they saw me as successful. Two different people telling me the same message.
1: Yeah, and, and I think I think that's part of the problem is that hedonic treadmill phenomenon where it's just enough is never enough. And and I mean your story is amazing coming from the background that you did to financial success. And I, I think we men are always trying to prove ourselves that we're good enough successful mm-hmm. enough, wealthy enough, whatever, whatever it is. But the, the problem with that model is enough is never enough. Whatever, you know, whatever we're talking about money or sex or cars or mm-hmm. homes, it's just never enough. Cause when you get to a certain level, you always see more people that have more of whatever it is you're pursuing.
0: So it's interesting you say this because the guy that bought my company who had worked for me for a long time, he was my GM. And his name is Mark. And Mark said to me at one point in time, are you ever going to be content? Are you ever going to stop reaching for the next thing? Yeah. Hell of a question. And at the time I told him, I said, no, no, the journey is not in the destination for me. It's in the, it's in the journey itself. I was, you know, the, uh, whatever that statement is, you know, I
1: think that's true that, that, you know, happiness is learning to enjoy the journey not finding the destination.
0: And so here's the thing for somebody who doesn't have the MBA and the college degree in the Wharton business school of economics or all this other stuff that people love to tout. I also didn't have the debt. I should add, <laughs> that, uh, that nowadays has to get so, so-called.
1: Wait, I, wait, pardon me. I got to throw this in. I read today that 47% of the white freshmen coming into Harvard are not academically qualified for Harvard. Mm. That they're, they're legacy students, they're students whose parents or grandparents have contributed money. a bunch of money, yeah. or they're high-level athletes. Uh, mm. You know, and so it's just like, wow. So not even Harvard students are qualified to be Harvard students. Yeah, there There's you go. Many of them.
0: And so I, um, I'm that guy that's like, well, I don't know if I'm smart enough. I questioned a lot of that. You know, the inner critic, but. The one thing that school taught me was how to survive, how to figure it out, how to think on my feet, because I was in a student home of 16 boys within like three years of age range. And so you were thinking on your feet all the time. And so the one thing I pride myself on is my ability to think quickly on my feet, street smarts. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm very confident in that. And I have been told that that is one of my best attributes is that is that I carry my confidence in a way that's not cocky, right? And so I know for me, so for instance, buying a house without any cash in the bank, I don't know how you would do that, especially if they require, if it's an investment property, they require 20% down, but watch me. You Mm. test me, you tell me that's an option. You tell me you challenge me. I will find a way to get that house.
1: Wait, is there so let me ask you this? Is there another way to challenge you by saying, Matt, you can't do that?
0: I think Does that motivate you? I think it does. Yeah. I I I I think I think I think it's less motivating for someone to tell me that I can't do something than it is for me to to personally know that something is somewhat achievable. And I just don't know how on earth I'm going to make it happen, and then I go make it happen. Mm-hmm. So it's more that the there's an opportunity there that I think I can see and I can figure out how to do it. And so I actually did, actually did that. I ended up with a vacation rental property in 2015, um, and yeah, I had no business buying this rental property. I didn't a I didn't know how to manage it. B I didn't know how to manage it from afar. I managed it from Massachusetts, and it was in Fort Myers, Florida. So I had to manage it from afar. I had to figure all of that out, I had to figure out all the marketing, the advertising, the booking process. And then oh, by the way, I had to come up with the, the cash, the 20% down for the property. I didn't have that. But I figured it out. And then not only did I figure it out, I figured out how to furnish the entire place with new furniture. And repairs because it was a uh, foreclosed property owned by FHA owned by Fannie Mae. And so I bought the house and I put an offer on the house, Dr. John, I put the offer on the house uh, two days after it came on the market and they rejected the offer. It was the only offer. They rejected it because it was not an owner-occupied offer. Mm. And Fannie Mae properties had to be owner-occupied at the time if they were offered in the first 10 days. On day 11, I offered again and I got it. (laughs) And on day, a day 12, my neighbor offered, she missed out. Wow. Yeah. So like, and funny enough, that's my journey that actually brings me full time to Fort Myers. Now I just moved from Massachusetts like a month ago, full time into Fort Myers after seven years of having property down here. So little things like that, you know, I, I just, but if you want to challenge me to run up that hill, no dude, I'll just take the car. (laughs) <laughs> like there's other things I'm not going to do. Like I'm just not interested in. Uh, but if they stretch me mentally and, and I think that they're a good investment and there's a payoff down the road and things like that, then yeah. And you know, I'm not driven by money. I know a lot of people that count the numbers in their bank account. And that is not me at all. I'm driven by not going back to where it came from. I just don't want to go backwards at all from a, a wealth standpoint or a cash flow standpoint. And so I just work every day to not go backwards, but I don't work every day to make myself a million dollars every year. I'm not interested in that. I could care less about so that. So
1: tell me more about what you are driven by because I think there's more freedom. to it than that. Yeah, there you go.
0: I'm driven by freedom. And in the book, I define it. My definition of freedom is doing what I want, when I want, where I want, and how I want. And so there are days. Like literally every Friday and my calendar is blocked off. I don't work Fridays. Now I do work some Fridays to be very clear, but it's a choice. Mm -hmm. It's a choice to work that Friday. It's a choice to talk to someone on the phone that day or something, but generally much
1: better than an obligation to work Friday.
0: Right. And so this is how I've designed my consulting practice and my coaching business is that uh, I, I am on a call with somebody and I will set up the next call the next week. And maybe two weeks out, but nothing more than that. And, you know, I I charge a fair rate, I think. And I had a client say to me, well, I don't know if that's going to work for me. I tell you what, uh, I'd like the same time block every week. And I said, no, that's not how I work. That's not what I do. And they said, okay, no, I understand. I'll pay you three times the amount. I said, no, it's not important to me. I want to know this. Dr. John, when I look four weeks out of my calendar, it should be empty because if I want to take the week off, I want to go on a cruise. I want to go somewhere else. I want that flexibility. I want that freedom. I want that choice. I'm not going to be dictated by four or five clients, by the way, I don't need more than that on a coaching level. Mm -hmm. Um, four or five clients is more than enough for me. And I'm very happy with that. And, uh, and I'm just not interested in it. Now I do have a group coaching program, and that happens on the second Wednesday of every month. And so I don't schedule anything around that. I'm always available on that. If I want to take a trip, it's not the second Wednesday. I honor that commitment I made to other people. People only pay me 50 bucks a month for that. That's very low-end uh, dollar amount. But I'm there for them for those two hours every second Wednesday of the month. And that's a commitment. I'm totally cool with that. I I if people want, instead of paying me three times my one-on-one rate, just go into my thing for 50 bucks and then we don't have to talk about this anymore. You know, mm-hmm. And I'm good with that. And because that's the most important thing to me is just that that flexibility. When I sold my agency, I was only working three days a week. One of the reasons I actually sold the agency was because the staff started being more vocal and feeling uncomfortable that the owner was an absentee owner, you know? Mm-hmm. And I was just like, you know what? I don't even want to deal with this anymore. I'm going to sell it. And yeah. I had an active buyer and a good price. And so I did it. And um, people often ask me if I regret it. And I say, are you kidding me? No. The only time I ever danced was the day I left that office. <laughs> you
1: know? well, and, and I think it brings up a really interesting question. Of I think most men that I've talked to are they are driven by money. They are driven by success. They're driven by their innate competitiveness. And I I think we, I've seen it over and over that we become a slave to those things. And, you know, I, I was going to write a second book, a second book and and title it stop being your brain's bitch, which means stop being used by your mind. Mm -hmm. And, And I think it's the same thing with this too. Like Who's in control, which is why I love the question you asked. And are you in control of your schedule or is your schedule in control of you? Are you in control of, you know, pursuit of money or is it in control of you?
0: Mm-hmm. And, and because I guess what does it sight. get you? It gets yeah. you material things. But is that really what brings you joy? Is that really what brings you happy? If the physical things, if those things bring you joy, Maybe it's truly not those things that actually bring in you joy. Maybe there's more work that needs to be done there to look at, um, you know, do you have that condition? My mom has that condition, which, which is you buy something, you get that dopamine hit, and then she doesn't use it and she sells it for 10 cents on the dollar, right? Well, that's why Amazon is so great, right?
1: You get the dopamine hit when you order it. You get the dopamine hit when the box arrives at your door. You get it when you open the box and you see whatever you ordered, but then there's that hedonic treadmill effect of you habituate to whatever it is you just bought, whether it's a BMW or a Aston Martin or you know new vodka or whatever it is, after a few weeks, it doesn't add anything more to our life satisfaction. And so, you know, I think one of the things I try and espouse here is that. A lot of our happiness is about relationships and, you know, meaningful work and positive emotions, but I think we, we lose sight of the importance of our relationships.
0: There's not, you know, the first book I wrote was about getting more referrals and it was 45 different ways to stay in touch with other people. I wrote a book about how to care about other people. I'll never forget when I wrote that book in the very first chapter, it I told the story of Sonia Stetsler, a speaker friend of mine, and I was on a Zoom call with her and we were talking about what I was going to talk about, what my topic was going to be. We were talking about the success I had in the web design business and how all my business came from referrals. And she said, how'd you do that? I said, I don't know. I just stayed in touch with people. I kind of cared about people. And she said, that's what you need to talk about. I said, are Hmm. you telling me that we don't care about people? And she said, no, I'm just telling you, we forget. And so that pushed me into this work that I'm doing now, which, which at the time I didn't realize what I would be doing, right? That was six months before I sold the company. And then I moved, you know, toward this book in this, in this topic. And I realized as I've gone more into this, that literally everything I do is talk about relationships. Both books I wrote are about relationships to some degree. And It's interesting because as I look back, my first marriage failed. My relationship failed, right? May not be great at personal relationships, but I'm really good at business ones, right? Um, And so what's interesting about that is I I can look in hindsight and see where I made all the mistakes. Mm -hmm. You know, the things I did were funny enough, the things I did for business people, I didn't do for my wife. (laughs) Like, what's well, up with one
1: that? of the truisms I like, and, and I think that's really common actually. And it's yeah. one of the things I try to re- remind a lot of my executives that I work with that, you know, time and attention are the currency of relationships. And I, I think if you can keep that truism in mind, you're going to be really well off because I, I think we just, we get addicted to work. We get addicted to success and how it makes us feel important and manly and listened to and respected. And we don't get those same things at home. And yeah. it's it's harder at home with, you know, ourselves. Well, I think yeah, we're kids. more comfortable,
0: right? We, Absolutely. We, we already have this relationship. We don't have mm-hmm. to build it, right? We, we did that work early on, and now we're just in coast mode, right? Um, it's interesting. Anybody that buys an autographed copy of my first book, I actually write the same message in there to everybody. Uh, i personalize it, but it, it says, uh, relationships are the currency of life. Hmm, quite close. Right. Yeah. It just, and so to me, the most important thing is having great relationships with people. And they don't have to be deep, meaningful relationships. They're not like that, you know, the relationship you and I have isn't necessarily a relationship where. We're going to go out to dinner twice a week or once a month or even like that. Right. But it's like, oh, if we're in the same town, we might reach out and say hello and have a coffee when we get there. It's a different level of relationship, but those relationships grow over time. Right. And the more close you are to people, the tighter they get, the deeper they go and the more caring happens. And then when you have a problem in your life and in your business, you know who to call. Like right so I, now, if you ran out of gas, you could name me three people you'd call. Right. And that happens in business too. You have something, if you you lost your biggest whale client today, <coughs> you'd call two or three people. My question is, do you have two or three people you'd call? Because if you're chasing the money, you don't.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I agree 100%. And and you know one of the things I saw recently is that it takes a lot of time to build a really good friendship. Like seven hundred hours was what they came up with, huh. and and so I think you know a lot of this is about being open to building new relationships, and I also think it's about how do you make people feel when you're with them, when you're talking to them, because I, I mean it's. If you're depressive and pessimistic and kind of a downer and you leave people walking away with that feeling after a conversation, you know, how much do people want to come back to that and duplicate that experience versus your kind of, you know, the high five effect, which is, you know, let's get excited. Let's bring some joy. Let's bring some excitement and happiness, contentment, relaxation, pride, celebrate achievement. All that feels good to us. And it's not done nearly enough.
0: It's interesting because um, inside the book, there's a grid called the ideal client matrix. And this grid works not just for your clients, but it works for all the people in your life. If you want to plot out people in your life in this grid, you can do that just the same. The grid is an X, Y axis, right? It's just a box with with an X, Y axis in it. And going across horizontally is pain on the left and uh, joy on the right. And then vertically in the middle is transaction-driven at the bottom, and relationship-driven at the top. Mm-hmm. And so if you have somebody that makes you happy, makes you smile, they're going to be toward the right. And if they're relationship-based people, they're going to be toward the top, which puts them in the ideal client zone. Not everybody's going to be both those, or not everybody is going to be a on a scale one to 10, a 10 on both of those. And so you Mm -hmm. have the ability to plot these people anywhere within this thing, and you can move them around based on whether or not these people are interested in a relationship or not, you know, and I know, Dr. John, you have met people in your life that are not interested in any kind of future relationship. They just want to do business and get in and get out. There's no small talk. There's none of that. They don't want to know the kids' names. They don't want to know that, um, You put a Staples button in the backpack, you know, any of that (laughs) stuff. They don't want to know the stories of your life. And then there are people that do. Mm -hmm. And for me, personally, that's what matters to me. I could care less if we ever exchange business. But if we have that type of relationship, then to me, that drives me to the next day. I'm a happier person. One of the things I talk a lot about in my coaching is writing handwritten cards to people. Mm
1: -hmm. So
0: basic. But even when you do that, you raise your own level of happiness when you write out a card to someone. And so I just think we need more of that. Like. Because when you go to the mailbox and get the mail, the first thing you see is a card. That's the first thing you open. You ignore all the Mm -hmm. other stuff in the standardized number 10 envelope. You go
1: for the It's a little of that these days.
0: Right. That's why I own the domain to go from the (laughs) inbox to the mailbox. Uh, And I think,
1: you know, I think the other thing is that it it brings up that concept of altruism. and, And there's been a longstanding debate in psychology is, of is altruism really altruistic? In other words, if I do something kind for you, Matt, then I get a positive feeling back. I feel good about myself. So it's not truly altruistic, to which my response is, I don't give a shit. Do it anyway. Yeah.
0: It's a win-win. I think. I just think I Keith ferrazi what set me on this path was Keith ferrazi wrote this great book called Never Eat Alone. Mm, which yeah. is about sharing meals with other people. But what I took away from it was to give without the expectation of getting anything in return. Mm-hmm. And while that's a difficult process to comprehend and one to put in place, I tell people all the time, look, it's not odd for you to think, but wait, when's my turn? Just don't act on it. Mm-hmm. Because that makes you the ass. You're not a good person if you're act- like. If you like, hey, where's my turn? Like Think about that for a second. Think about like just basic LinkedIn. Hey, here's LinkedIn. I'm putting content out there, content out there, content out there. Somebody connects. Um, I, I help them out. And then all of a sudden I send them a message like, hey, what about me? Really? <laughs> How about you go to a trade show and the guy steps out and just hands his card to you? I call that guy the Pez dispenser. Nobody wants any part of that. We love to buy. We hate to be sold to. Mm -hmm. So build relationships that produce referrals, but more so show that you care about helping other people. I mean, that's what this podcast is all about. You don't do a podcast because you make money from the podcast. You do a podcast because you're putting great content out into the world. You're helping people. There's a ton of people that listen to this podcast that have never exchanged dollars with you.
1: Mm -hmm. No, I agree. My whole philosophy ever since I was in graduate school was to take tools from research, which no one can understand or read, simplify them and share them with as wide an audience as possible for no other reason than it makes the world a better place.
0: Did you you have to do broccoli and cheese sauce class there in graduate school? (laughs) You know, I
1: didn't get that detailed. It was it was more about thinking less about eating.
0: <laughs> that was the worst class And I ever. still
1: eat broccoli. I, I mean, I like broccoli. But it took me many years to get there. Okay,
0: I don't know if we can be friends now.
1: Well, you know. Broccoli.
0: Share Do you put it Do you put it on your pizza?
1: No. No, no but I do put thing. jalapenos on my pizza.
0: Oh, okay. I will have to try
1: that. I yeah, I put uh, like yeah, jalapeno, pepperoni, onion. It's a gut bomb waiting to happen. But, ooh, <laughs> so good. And it does make me sweat, I gotta say, but everything does. <laughs> awesome. um, so let me let me ask you a question. So I just turning to the book for a second, yeah, one of the things that you state about the book is that you want to learn your value and don't let others underestimate it. And I think, yeah. you know, self-worth is a huge problem. Like everyone I've talked to in the past, doesn't realize their own self-worth and maybe that's an overstatement but not much and so i was curious what your take was on that
0: uh, my take is that i agree i was one of them probably still am one of them to a degree Yeah, me too uh, constantly a work in progress the first thing we think of about this is when someone says hey how much do you charge and we're like uh, uh, "Yeah, five
1: cents uh,
0: yeah um i almost did that again today I'm on a call and it, just a networking call. And we started talking and the next thing you know, she's like, oh, well, how much is your coaching? And I was like, Ugh. and i just, and then I just let it go. It's the price is the price. Mm-hmm. Um, what set me on the right path with value was a statement that my, one of my content coaches, Tamsin Webster said to me, you got to know who you're for and who's for you. And I've carried that with me ever since I carry it with me from speaking from the stage. And I carry it with me when I make vocal comments, like I only need four or five clients. I even tell my clients to do the math. You don't need what you think you need. You don't need a thousand clients. You're not selling mm-hmm. widgets, right? Your service-based businesses, you're you're, you can handle 20 clients maybe. Um, so, Problem is, is that I think that when it comes to the value stuff, we haven't actually broken down the thought process of why we need what we need. And when we do that, and when we mix that with our target market from a marketing perspective, we can start to realize that we are the expert in what we do. In such a small pond. Mm -hmm. The minute you can put yourself in this, uh, a lot of people like to call it a niche. Let's be clear a niche is what you do, a target market is who you serve. Okay. So if we can get to a target market that has a really, really small pond and we become the big fish in the small pond, then everybody just looks to us and they come to us for all the business and people refer us and then we provide the value. Right. And so if we can be, Um, If I can be a business coach for electricians, then I can go to an electrician's Facebook group and interact as a business coach. And now I'm a big fish in a small pond because think about it. How many other business coaches are in the Facebook group? Mm -hmm. Probably maybe a handful of which none of them engage. So now when someone asks me what I charge, not a problem. I can stand in my value because I've given so much value before and I'm worth every penny of it. I also think we really have to believe in affirmation statements of ourselves mm-hmm. and get rid mm-hmm. of the inner critic, which is super tough, right? <laughs> I yeah. still have inner critic. I, I get nervous before going to speak on stage in front of two or 3000 people. I feel like I'm going to get judged or maybe they think I'm too fat or too bald or whatever. Right. It, that stuff goes on. Um, the biggest thing with, with these things, Dr. John, is just it's just not dwelling on them and just knowing that you are, this goes back to what you said earlier, you are a success. Mm-hmm. Like you couldn't, there's no way I could have got to a stage with an audience of two or 3,000 people if I wasn't successful. Non-successful people don't get there. And so you have to look at those things to offset these other things And then when you have demand and you have no more capacity, that's when you know you're undercharging and you need to value yourself more. And often what I I told a friend once is he's a hypnotist. He was charging 300 an hour. He doubled his price and his calendar booked up even more. And it was a different type of client now. Yeah. You know, and so everybody has those situations. They're not all the same, but, um, Everybody's situation is unique, but at the end of the day, it's about capacity. This is a supply and demand thing. You know, we have right. uh, supply chain issues going on right now in the in in the U.S. post COVID or still COVID or whatever this is called now. In <laughs> um, the price of everything is going up because people yep. can't get it. And when people can't get you, the price goes up and it goes up based on supply and demand. And the reason there's a demand is because you're good. The question is, can you bring up your price because you believe in the value? In the speaking business, I once heard somebody say, I could not get around saying that my fee was $15,000 for an hour long speech. He just couldn't articulate it. Once he got to the point where he was comfortable saying it, then that's what he quoted. Mm-hmm. But it took him some time, and whatever that process is for each person is going to be different. But at the end of the day, we got to have more value in in ourselves, and that comes with respect, right? We respect yeah. ourselves, <clears throat> who we are as people, and we bring and, more. Yeah, people- and. So thank you for
1: that series of answers, because I think it's such an important question. And I, I like that you touched on the personal affirmations, because I do think that's an important part to counter that inner critic, which has told us tens of millions of times, something like we are not worthy. You're not smart enough. You're not fit enough. You're not whatever enough. <clears throat> her suit enough, hairy enough you know? um, But I I think, you know, one of the things I teach to a lot of clients is this idea of loving kindness meditation. And partly because it goes to, you know, you can wish kind thoughts upon your loved ones, yourself, and extending out to the whole world. And it sounds something like, may I be happy? May I be healthy? May I live life with ease and well-being? And then I'll always throw something in like, may I feel worthy? And I I like the, the phrasing of that, I think is really important because if I just try and do a positive affirmation of I am worthy. there's part of my mind that will argue against me. No you're not. You're a worthless piece of shit. you know that kind of stuff. And oh, so what you're we,
0: asking we, for is permission, right?
1: Yeah, well it's, yeah, it's a request, not a statement. Mm-hmm. So it's may I feel worthy And I think if you do that you know many thousands of times, that's one of the ways to instill greater value and self-worth. but it's 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 a tremendous question, I think.
0: I was doing a um, book club for the new book uh, for a chamber of commerce and uh, they were talking about this idea of the freedom thing that I talked about and how it was the choice and whatnot. And they said to me, well, you know, Matt, it sounds like you really have it dialed in about what you want. Like, well, that took a long time to get there, I assure you. And it's still evolving over time no pun intended right (laughs) at the end of the day though i probably didn't get there until just like two years ago but what happened was i just really said what is bothering me right now about what i am doing so when i was speaking on stages in 2019 it was awesome that's what i wanted then COVID hit in the last Paid in-person gig I did was March 7th of 2020. And then I went on Zoom and started doing a couple paid, but a lot of free stuff. Building my email list, just providing content. And I then transitioned into coaching in 2020. And I was doing a whole bunch of coaching calls. And I was like, I don't like this. This is gross. I don't want to do this. (laughs) I just felt so icky, right? Just like everybody's going to become a coach now because everybody's getting laid off and not working. I can help you find your why. And I was like, why do I want to do that? Yeah, (laughs) it was bad. And so then I just said, okay, what do I not like about it? And I sat with that question for two weeks and just kept Searching. What do I not like about that? And as it turns out, what I didn't like, what I love most is the breakthroughs that these people have, the changes they make in their business, the fact that one of my clients tripled her business in a little over a year. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. But then I realized what I hated was that block calendar month out. And I said, you know what? That's what I need to change. Mm -hmm. So I'll raise my price. I'll get have less clients, make the same amount of money, have less calls. And not allow anyone to book further than two weeks out. And it's yeah, been working great ever since.
1: So let me ask you this. One of the other things you mentioned in the book, changing subjects slightly, is finding and doing business with clients who bring you joy. And this is one of the things that I've talked to a lot of new therapists about, new mental health professionals, that, look, you can fire your clients. Oh, Yeah. If, if they're bringing you down, if they're not changing, if it's not a good fit, you have permission from me to fire their ass. So what is what do you talk about with finding and doing business with people who bring you joy?
0: So first, let me address that. Because Nicole, a social media man, owns a social media management company, started working with me in September of 2020. First two weeks I worked with her, all she did was talk about this one client 80% of the time. Like, Nicole, why do you keep talking about this person? And she's like, well, she takes up all my time. I said, you need to fire her.
1: She mm-hmm. pays
0: a, she pays an old rate anyway. She's not paying the current rate. I can't. I need the money. I said, okay, well, think about it. But I think you need to fire her. So a week later, she fires her. <coughs> Two weeks later, she gets a new client paying current rate. So she's already making more money. Now she has less bandwidth because she didn't... This, person isn't occupying her head yeah she's got more bandwidth
1: yeah so she's renting
0: less space in her head to this old that's right within six months she doubled her revenue within a year she tripled it yep and so if that's not a case study for firing people i don't know what is when i talk about working with clients to bring you joy um that that's a big part of it um, especially if the clients aren't bringing you joy but know this that if you don't have a predictable amount of revenue coming in every month you won't fire clients because mm-hmm. you don't feel secure you don't feel safe and that's the number one reason why people take on clients that they know they shouldn't take on when I interviewed 50 small business owners in this book the red flags were something they all saw and ignored and the reason they ignored them was because they needed the money
1: well let me ask you this on the on the front end of the, this whole process So a client comes to you, and I guess it you know varies by industry, but a client comes to you with a problem, and you have an introductory call with them. Mm -hmm. I think there's also this process of vetting and empowering yourself to say, "Yeah, you know what? I I really appreciate your problem, but this isn't a good fit for me."
0: Oh yeah, hundred percent. And
1: and steering them somewhere else and referring out to another whatever it is, coach, doctor.
0: This works in every industry. The problem is people are unwilling to do this because they want the money to cover the Mm -hmm. bills. And so the way they solve that problem is to get to a level of predictable amount of income so that they, because this is a red flag, right? Whether we want to call it a red flag or not, a red flag is is anything that makes the future client relationship not ideal.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So yeah, I might be able to solve this problem Uh, but maybe you don't have the budget for it. Or maybe you don't have the bandwidth for it as the client. Or um, maybe it's not the perfect problem. Right? So maybe somebody gets referred to you, let's just say, hypothetically, you. uh, I don't know if this is true, but you only work with men? Primarily. Okay, primarily. So somebody might refer you, a woman, to work with, and it's up to you to then... turn that away right mm-hmm. um if it's not a good fit um for me you know i i turned somebody away recently and it, it we never even got to the money discussion it was because it, it wasn't a good fit
1: mm-hmm.
0: <clears throat> so i can turn people away because i have enough income coming in and so we won't turn people away if we don't, but yes, to your point, it's just like your podcast, many podcasts do podcasts, bring interviews, right? Is it, is this going to be a good you know, guest for, for my audience to listen to Are we going to bring value? Can right. We have a conversation and have them answer a question because I, as a podcast host myself in the past, I've had people on, uh, and they can't have a dialogue. It's just like, they're just, spewing marketing material and that's not good for anybody. Right. Mm -mm. So, uh, in the book, uh, I referenced, um, Jody, uh, Jody Crowley is a realtor. And she says, you know, when I take on a client, clients always want to interview realtors to list their house. Um, but when I meet with them, I call it an interview. I don't call it a listing appointment. I call it an interview. And I, I interview them as much as they're interviewing me because there are certain things that both sides of this equation, this, this business relationship need to do and perform. Jody needs to list and sell the house and take the photos, but these people need to have their house ready for sale and Mm -hmm. they're responsible for that. And you can tell rather quickly if they're not going to do the work, right? And you and I know as coaches, We know right away if somebody's not going to be doing the work, Mm -hmm. you know, we see it um, because we also see the people who will do the work. Usually the people that will do the work will tell us within five or 10 minutes of meeting them that they are ready to take action and change and they are committed to doing the work. They usually vocalize that in some form or fashion. And it's because they're so frustrated With the status quo that they're willing to do. Well, and and
1: pardon me, Matt, I'll even ask them directly. To what extent are you committed to doing the work? To what extent do you believe change is possible? On a one to 10 scale, Mm -hmm. what's your answer? Because if you don't believe change is possible, it's not going to happen. And if you're not committed to doing the work, change doesn't happen. So yeah, I'll I'll just come right out and ask it. So I, I appreciate your and so to your, your advice there. <laughs>
0: point, even though this is a bit of a long-winded answer about um, <laughs> you know doing business, not just it's not just doing business with clients who bring you joy, but doing business with people because they're more than just clients that bring you joy in business, right? It definitely is about that filtering process and that goes for business relationships, business partners, referral sources, contacts you meet at the local chamber of commerce, whoever it is. If if the, the hair on the back of your neck is sticking up when you meet somebody, it's a problem. And you either need to determine what that problem is or just move in another direction. Mm-hmm. and. Um, because you don't want to have anxiety over conversations in the future. That's not what business should be about. You should wake up every day, not dreading to go to work or have this call or that call. The minute you have someone on your schedule and your calendar and you look at that and go, Oh my goodness. That's the minute you need to fire them. They're not bringing mm-hmm. you joy. They're not. And if you want a couple of hacks on firing them, just say, Hey it's not working out. I mean, there's lots of ways you can divorce your clients, you know?
1: Yeah. And you might need to practice, but uh, it's definitely worth the practice. So let me, we got to wrap up here in a few minutes. One of the things that I wanted to get to is the tattoos that you have (laughs) on your body, because I think it highlights the importance of the school in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Sure. Tell us about those.
0: So on my right calf is the largest building in the town of Hershey. It's called Founders Hall. Uh, if you Google it, you take a look at it. Um, and, and, uh, and that's got the fountain in front of it with a banner of the years I was at the school. So that's on my right calf. Uh, on my left arm is an inscription and I'll show this on the on the video. His deeds are his monument. His life is our inspiration. There's a statue inside of Founders Hall, Milton Hershey and a Boy, and that's inscripted on the statue. There's a timeline here. Um, 1857, that was his birth year. 1909, that's the year he put the money into the trust fund. Uh, 1945 is the year he died. 1973 is my birth year. 1984 is the year I entered the school. 1991 is the year I graduated. And then on the end is the uh, logo for the school, which is my... High school ring which i wear every day on my right hand and then on my left my right arm is my newest tattoo and that is of my high school which overlooks hershey park at the time it was called senior hall now it's called Catherine hall and it's now the middle school and so that's a big castle looking building uh and it looks in, exactly
1: uh, like the photo you showed me
0: yeah and so um so what i'll do is i'll i'll, I'll take some pictures this weekend for you dr john and we'll okay. make sure we get the pictures over to you and put them in the show notes so you guys can check them out if Excellent. you want to check them out. And yeah. And then what we'll do is we'll grab the pictures from like Google images and show you the the, the, the side by sides. That'd be kind of cool, I guess. But perfect. No, I appreciate well, you and, taking interest in that. So,
1: and, and just in wrapping up, is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should, and where can people get a hold of you?
0: Yeah, sure. So, um, I don't know that there's anything you didn't ask me that you should have asked me. Um you know, a lot of people like to ask me if I like bacon, but you know the answer. I like bacon. <laughs> um, <laughs> who doesn't like bacon? I, oh, you'd have you'd be surprised. I've met a few people. Um <sighs> so uh yeah, so uh how to get a hold of me. Um uh, Matt speaks.com is the best place. I'm Matt Ward Speaks on all the channels. And um uh high five effect.com, all spelled out, is the, the website for the the hardcover of the book with some bonuses, and also it's on Amazon. You can get an EPUB version, and also in uh, paperback right on Amazon. Yeah,
1: fantastic. Well, thanks so much for joining me. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. I, I, I just I value this new friendship. I think yeah. you're a great guy. I love the the philosophy that you have towards life, and thank you for joining me.
0: Absolutely, I'm so honored to have been here. And as I always like to say at the end of every video in every podcast I do myself. Don't forget to live happy, smile a lot, and high five everyone around. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much,
1: Matt. And that's it for this episode of the Evolved Caveman. If you liked it, please be sure to like, rate, review, and shout it from the rooftops. If you didn't like it, that's okay. Just go back to work. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. If you like what you've heard, support us by subscribing, leaving reviews, and sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues. For the latest, most powerful tools to connect with like-minded men, join the Facebook group at The Evolved Caveman. Follow Dr. John on Instagram at The Evolved Caveman, all one word, or join the email list by visiting guidetoself.com.